Turn with me now in your Bibles to Isaiah 37. I'm going to read just briefly from Isaiah 37, and then we'll go over to our sermon passage, which is Hebrews chapter 10. So in a moment, we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10. But first, let's read now Isaiah 37, verses 1 through 20. Isaiah 37, 1 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So, the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, And he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Reseph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Zephyrphaim, Hena and Iva? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, 
The kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Amen. Isaiah is an interesting book. For many chapters, he has been preaching to the kingdoms of God, Israel, to Judah specifically. Repent or you will be destroyed. Assyria is coming. And indeed, by this chapter, has come. And Assyria has destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Ten tribes of God's people no longer exist. Erased from the map and from history. Assyria has come up to surround Jerusalem. Has taken all the fortified cities outside of Jerusalem. So that Jerusalem alone stands unguarded and undefended. And it's in this moment that Hezekiah receives first an audible message from the Rabshakeh. That's an untranslated Hebrew word that means like household servant. Now why the Rabshakeh is doing such an important job as serving as the herald of the great Assyrian king is found in the fact that he's speaking Hebrew. This is a traitor. This is an Israelite who has gone over to the Assyrians and is speaking on their behalf. And he's threatening Jerusalem and he's threatening Judah and he's saying to Hezekiah, throw in the towel, you can't win. Later he'll send him a letter with the same message written down. Hezekiah has the same response to both messages. He goes to the house of God. What should be striking to us is this fact. For 36 chapters, Isaiah has said, God is sending Assyria to punish you. And what is Hezekiah's response when Assyria comes? He runs to God. The God who is sending Assyria to punish you. With that in mind, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Our sermon this morning continues this series through the book of Hebrews. We look at chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. As I said last week, we've had nine and a half chapters of the Holy Spirit pressing upon us this truth. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. And now halfway through chapter 10, we begin to get the application And last week we looked at the first paragraph of application. Because Jesus is better, let us have faith, hope, and love. These three. And now today, we will add to that. In order to have faith, hope, and love, in order to persist in faith, hope, and love, we must also have repentance. So look together with me. At Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. Here again, the word of the Lord. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen and amen. When I was a teenage boy, we had an old car that was falling apart, it was no longer roadworthy. And once when my teenage friend was over, the two of us asked my dad if we could take that beaten old car down into the fields of our farm and have fun driving around. Now just for the record, when two teenage boys ask you for a car to drive around on the farm, the answer is no. But my dad said yes. For reasons I still haven't quite grasped. And we took that car down into the fields and just what you're imagining happened. We drove up and down and we were having a great old time until I came to a long straightaway where there was a bend in the road at the far end and it was gravel. I turned to my friend at a full stop. Do you think I can go from zero to 65 before we get to the curve of the road? And when he expressed enthusiasm in finding out, I slammed on the gas pedal threw stones out the side of the tires and tore off down the gravel road. Somewhere north of 45 miles an hour, it suddenly dawned on me, you can't take that turn in the road at this speed. And that's about when I arrived at the turn in the road. I turned the wheel and the car just kept turning and turning and turning and turning. We spun 360s in the middle of the road. We spun 360s right out into the field next to the road. I watched as the side mirror went off. I watched as the hubcap went off. I could hear the tires shredding on the rims. We come to a stop. We get out, thankful to be alive and well. We sit down in the grass and we looked at what was left of the old car and began to contemplate very silently. What does this mean when Dad finds out? And then I was hit with an extraordinary thought. With all that anxiety in my stomach, all that fear of of imagining the anger and the wrath on my father's face, I suddenly realized there was one thing in the world I wanted more than anything else. Dad. Because he knew how to fix this. Because he knew what to do and I didn't. And that is what this text is communicating to us today. That we have a Father in heaven 
whom we have offended greatly every day with our sins. And there is fiery indignation and just judgments for us, his children. But we should long for him. But we should long for him to come to us because he knows how to fix it. You see, the good news for us in this text, the gospel for us is that Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. And so let us turn from our sin to God. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. So let us fearlessly turn from our sin to God. Continually. Look at the text with me this morning. Notice in verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Matthew Henry notes that this verse has caused great torture and torment to many tender consciences. And it is true. Part of it is is that we misunderstand the final phrase, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. We take this to mean that this is an unforgivable sin. When in fact, in the context of Hebrews 1, 1 through 10, we have actually been learning that the point of the Holy Spirit in this entire book is that there is no other sacrifice for sin. There is a sacrifice for sin. His name is Jesus Christ. But if you have set him aside and determined not to believe in him, then there remains no other sacrifice. The significance of the verb remains shows us that it is not an unforgivable thing that we are examining here in as much as it is the failure to understand how we are forgiven. We have a remaining sacrifice in Christ, but should we set Christ aside, there no longer remains an option. He is the one and only sacrifice. Part of the problem also lies in the middle section. How do we understand we have received the knowledge of the truth? Does this mean those who casually attend to the pews and listen to some sermons? Those who have happened to be brought up in the church and know a little bit about its doctrine and teaching? Or does it actually mean genuine faith has actually professed faith? Which level of reception do we have in mind here? But in fact, most of the fault lies in our misunderstanding of the first line. For if we sin willfully, Calvin has a master class on exegeting that phrase in his commentary. When the Holy Spirit says to us in verse 26, if we sin willfully, after we have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, It is an unforgivable sin we have misunderstood what the Holy Spirit has said. The sins that the Spirit here is speaking of come to us from verses 22, 23, and 25. Those three commands which the Holy Spirit gave us. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope And let us, verse 24, not 25, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. In other words, faith, hope, and love. This willful, intentional, and deliberate neglect of faith in the gospel. 
That's what leaves us without a sacrifice for sin. If we do not believe in Jesus, then we do not have Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. And if our hope is not growing up out of that gospel, then we have not truly believed in that gospel. And if that faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is now growing up into hope, has not branched out into love for the brethren, then did we ever have faith to begin with? This is the vision that is cast for us by the Holy Spirit. That we should not be frightened in searching out our consciences. Have I sins of which I refuse to repent? That is a perilous condition indeed. But the more important point is have I refused to take those sins to Christ? Have I refused to return to Jesus on a regular basis? In other words, to use the theological term, what the Holy Spirit speaks of here when he says sin willfully is apostasy. When someone has fully and finally set aside Jesus and said, I will be saved some other way. There is no other sacrifice for that. There is no other option. Not that apostasy can't be reversed. But that it is only reversed by returning to that which was rejected. The gospel of Jesus Christ. This becomes the foundation of this application. That we are to live as believers in faith, hope, and love. But how do we sustain faith? From the first day we believe to the day we're called to judgment. And how do we grow hope so that it rises to the heavens? And and how does this translate into love for one another when we live in a world so unlovely and so unlovable? We return to Jesus. We return to Jesus. We return to Jesus. We go back to the gospel and we reapply forgiveness. And we receive again the forgiveness. Beloved, you must repent of your sin and run to Jesus. Not once. Not once a day. But continually. Constantly. It is with this warning in our hearts that the Holy Spirit goes on and adds to it yet greater warnings. There are three more warnings that come. Hang on. This one's hard. Warning one. That if we do not believe in Jesus, and if we do not have hope and love growing up out of Jesus, there is no other hope or love to be had. That's the first warning. The second is, a certain and fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Far from a life of faith in which we believe in this Jesus who has loved us and given himself for us, far from a life of hope in which we find encouragement and cheer to keep on, far from a life of love in which we stir one another up to good works, 
Instead, we set aside faith, hope, and love and live with a certain fearful expectation. Notice, the Holy Spirit does not warn you of judgment and fiery indignation in and of itself, but warns the church first of a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. That is to say that when we set aside our returning to repentance and our our continual confession of sin, when we give up that rhythm and habit of going back to the gospel, we open up a void in our hearts and fearful expectations arise. He speaks of the psychological trauma that we inflict on ourselves when we do not rest on Christ alone. He speaks of the guilt and the shame that accumulates in our souls, suffocating our love and our life. He speaks of a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. Let me illustrate this for you. In 15 years of pastoral ministry, I've enjoyed a repeated experience. Not that it's pleasurable, but that it is a delight to see. A believer who has harbored secret sin for years comes to me, burdened, oppressed, wounded, hurting, sitting in darkness, And says to me, here is this sin. And all at once, that Nazgul, that presence of darkness, evaporates. And the fearful expectation of judgment goes away. From the words of John Calvin, the moment we admit our sin, we have sin no more. Beloved, we're enslaved to a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, and it silences us, and we don't acknowledge our sin. But the Holy Spirit warns us today, your silence is what enslaves you. No, go to your Father, speak that sin Name it aloud and say, forgive me, have mercy on me. And be released from the expectation of judgment and indignation. Now don't skip this other part, which is those of us who live under the terror of a fear-filled expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. If we do not heed this warning, then our expectation is accurate. And we are advancing into judgment and fiery indignation, which devours the adversaries of God. Notice also then this split in the road, that the fiery indignation and judgment of God devours only the adversaries. It falls perhaps on the church of Jesus Christ, but the children of God are not devoured by it. This is what we saw in the experience of Hezekiah. God's fiery indignation came upon the nation of Israel 
And the sword of Assyria was a fierce judgment against them. And the adversaries were swept away. But the children remained. In fact, Hezekiah in his prayer calls it a remnant. There's a remnant. Beloved, when we feel the heat of God's wrath against our sin, let us not hide from him as Adam did in the garden. Let us not run from him as Cain did in the wilderness. Let us run to him. As we will soon see. As Hezekiah did. This is the second warning. The third is greater still. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. By isolating the specific law of Moses in which there are two or three witnesses, the Holy Spirit calls to our attention not the whole law of Moses, but the specific command that pertains to monotheism. When he says, you are to die without mercy and without pity on the witness, two or three witnesses, he's referring to those who worship false gods. The command actually is, if your son or your daughter says, let us worship false gods, you, the parent, are to be the first one to bring that child into the city square. And you, the parent, are to pick up the first stone. And you are without pity and mercy to smash the flesh and bone which you have created. Because they have had another God before the one true God. If that sounds heartbreakingly brutal, then imagine how this argument from the lesser to the greater should be applied to us. If anyone who rejected the one true God under Moses' law should be so mercilessly pulverized unto death by stones, how much more should we fear not the one who can kill the body, but the one who can kill the body and send the soul into hell? This is what Jesus warns us. We are sternly warned today that we cannot set aside the gospel, but must return to it continually and constantly, for without it there is no sacrifice for sin. We are sternly warned today that when we do set aside the gospel and and fail to go back to it continually, we open up ourselves to a fearful and proper expectation of judgment. But we are also warned today that that judgment is not merely the pains of this life, the discomforts of this earthly experience. That judgment is actually hell and an eternity forever of judgment. That judgment is not merely the destruction of our flesh in the city square. It is the destruction of flesh and soul in the everlasting wrath of God. This is the warning. Fourth, the warning is in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you suppose? Notice the crescendo. Notice the climaxing warnings. That it gets more and more severe. 
How much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has looked at the incarnation and said, God became flesh, and I don't care. God took my blood, my body, so that he could take my sin, my curse, my cross, and I don't care. And sets that corpse beneath his heel and stands with Satan, striking him in the heel. How much worse is it to behold the grace and glory of God in the coming of the Christ and to say, I'm not interested. Beloved, indifference is the one thing that makes no sense. I can tell you these warnings and I can teach you this gospel. And if you say that's insane, you're out of your mind, I understand where you're coming from. If you say that is so beautiful, that is my hope and my salvation, I'll say amen, nine two. But if you say, so what? I'm going to wonder if you're insane. God became human. And the righteous became unrighteous. And he who is eternal life died. Do not trample this underfoot. Then again, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. That that life of Christ, that life that is in the blood, that blood that was righteous, sinless, stainless, which obeyed all the law on our behalf, thus giving perfect righteousness to us, that blood of the covenant that covered our sin, that we should be forgiven, that blood of the covenant that set us apart from the blood of Adam, cursed to destruction, from the blood of our sins and ourselves, that new blood in which there is new life, righteous life, resurrected life, it is a common thing. He died between two thieves and he was no better than them. How horrible the thought. How awful the carelessness. How intense the warning from the Holy Spirit for us today. That we should not dare to open our scriptures. Nor sit beneath a sermon. And leave indifferent. And leave distracted. For in these words and in these pages is such a warning to us that there is hope in Christ, there is faith in Christ, there is love in Christ, but no other. And so last insults the spirit of grace. That is to say, the spirit is at work here. Have you considered that? It's a dangerous business coming to this worship service. It really is. For here the truth is preached and here the Spirit works upon that truth. But some of us insult that Spirit of grace by resisting His operations. By refusing to submit to His lead. 
and believe what is said and practice what is said. And what then shall we do with these warnings? It is my sincere hope that you can now say with Isaiah, woe is me. Because beloved, when it says in the text, if we go on sinning willfully, is there not a degree to which each and every one of us are condemned under this? That we have heard so many sermons and ignored them. And we've read so many scripture passages and been unchanged by them. And offered up so many prayers in a selfish, distracted way. Have we not abused these means of grace and neglected them? So let us have hope. On the heels of these four warnings, he gives us two hopes. I'll see if I can lift up the mood now. First, verse 30. For we know him. All right, I know there's really great Bible quotes about to come, and I'll explain them in a second. But don't skip over these words. This is the first ray of hope. Having thundered away with four warnings that we should grow alert to the reality that God is trying to save us, that God is indeed saving us. I don't mean try as in if he couldn't do it. I mean that he is working out his salvation among us. And calling to us, come be saved. That in so doing, we know him. He's actually come to us in the flesh. He's actually revealed himself to us. He's actually spoken to us. He's actually said, I love you. And I'm meaning to save you and I'm going to save you. We know him. We know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, the ready way to read this for many years, and it's tormented many Christians, is to say, this is the threat to Christians. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. God will judge believers who stay in sin. But we read Deuteronomy 32. And in Deuteronomy 32... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, is actually a promise to the church that God will have vengeance on those instruments of judgment that brought about the repentance of the believers. This is what God is promising us here. We know Him. We know Him who afflicts us. We know Him who warns us. We know Him who makes us suffer and cry and hurt. And we know he's doing it to bring us to himself. We know that he's doing it to bring us to repentance. He's breaking us down. And in Deuteronomy 32, there was the incredible line. When they get to the place where they have no hope. When they get to the place where they have no person. When they get to the place where they have nothing else. Then I will speak to them. This is why he judges us. This is why he warns us. This is why he afflicts us. To bring us to himself. So that we might have a habit of repentance. So that we might have a ritual of repentance. That we might turn continually from sin to him. Thus it says in verse 30. The Lord will judge his people. Can you guys finish the quote? How many of you memorized Deuteronomy 32 in the five seconds that I read it to you? 
For the Lord will judge his people. The rest of that sentence is. And have compassion on his own. These judgments that we taste. That fiery indignation that we deserve. That we live in fearful expectation of. Is not to be a dwelling place for the believer. But a way station on this pilgrimage to the heavenly house. That we should know what we deserve without Christ. And flee back to him. And embrace him. And live with him. Vengeance is mine I will repay. And I will judge my people. That is, I will oppress this congregation and I will make them hurt, but only so that they come to me. So that they will be cultivated into repentance and running to Jesus. Which brings us to the great hope in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Obviously, this sounds like a warning. And there is warning in it. It is a fear-filled thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It really is. He has fiery indignation for sin. He visits just judgments. And hell is waiting for those who have not Christ. It is a fearful thing to fall in His hands. And yet, do any of you remember at the end of Samuel... When God through the prophet came to David and said, you have sinned, David, in counting that census of Israel. And David, I'm going to give you one of three punishments. There's defeat at the hands of your enemy. There's plague that wastes the nation. And there is the angel of death from God himself. Does Anyone remember what David says? I'll give you a hint. It has something to do with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. Let us fall into the hands of God. Oh, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God because you will have no sin left. When he's done with you. But it is far better to fall into the hands of the living God. Than to remain in your sin. This is our warning this morning. To cultivate a rhythm of repentance. To build a lifestyle. Where we are continually turning from self to God. From sin to righteousness. Because it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But it is a healing thing also. It is a saving thing. Indeed, if you have done, and I encourage you to do it, a search on all the uses of the words fearful and living God in the scriptures, you will find that the only one who lives in terror of the living God are enemies of God. And every single example, including Psalm 42, including Psalm 84, where it says the living God, those who have faith want to be near him. I want to fall into his hands. I am terrified of falling in his hands. I know he's going to tear sin from me. 
I know he's going to crucify me with Christ, and I am terrified, but I want it. Martin Luther, in his 95 Theses, which he banged on the door of Wittenberg, said, when Christ commanded us to repent, he meant a life of continual repentance. Beloved, Jesus saves you from God's wrath. Jesus alone saves you from God's wrath. So turn away from your sin and to him continually and constantly. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this beautiful gospel. Father, these are hard and heavy things we have heard today. We have been beset by many warnings and we need them. For we grow dull in our faith. And we grow careless with our sin. And we pray that you would grant us this grace to hear and to heed this warning. And to flee from our sin. And to flee to Jesus. And we pray that you would bless us as a congregation. That we would stir one another up to the good work that is repenting of sin. That we would stir one another up to that love that casts out fear. That though we fear falling into your hands, we know also that love that casts out such fear. And we pray, Father, that we would be such a church, repenting of sin together and encouraging and building up one another in the repentance of sin. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.